worries me that some people on the side of the progressives, on our side of the spectrum, seem to think that the answer to one kind of tribalism is building up another tribalism. I think the right way is to find the method to transcend those tribes. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can be to authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. The elections for the European Parliament this week contain all kinds of fascinating stories. The success of the Brexit party in Britain, the ongoing march of right-wing populism across the heart of the continent, the consolidation of power of far-right populists in countries like Hungary. But the really big picture is much simpler than that. After Brexit happened, after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, there was a long debate for a year or two about whether this was a strange populist glitch or a long-term shift. I remember furious debates after the election in the Netherlands, after the French presidential election, after each new little data point about where the general direction of travel was going. Well, today we had an election in all of Europe, and the overall picture is very clear. Populism is not dominant in every single country. There are some places where it actually seems at the moment to be declining a little bit. But on the whole, it is clearly in the ascendant. Populists gained a much greater share of the vote than they had five years ago. In some countries, they are absolutely dominant. In many countries, they now have a large block of the vote. And that includes some countries that were supposedly safe from populism just a few short years ago. This doesn't mean that populism will continue to ascend. As we say in the stock markets, past performance is no guarantee of future results. But the stakes we face continue to be as high perhaps higher than ever before. That makes it all of the more exciting to me to introduce a really wonderful conversation to you. I had just an incredible conversation with Elif Shafak. Elif is of Turkish origin. She was born in Strasbourg in France, grew up partially in Istanbul, partially in Madrid. She now lives in the United Kingdom. And she's not just a woman of many geographical anchors. She is also one of many different talents. She is one of the best-selling fiction writers in the world with a series of wonderful bestsellers in her catalogue. But she's also something that can be rare among fiction writers, a very careful, very well-informed, very subtle political mind who is able to draw on her intimate knowledge of a broad swath of countries in Europe and the United States, where she's always also lived, to speak in her very distinctive voice to the threat of populism and to some of the things that all of us fiction writers and readers and non-fiction writers and readers can do about it. This is the kind of conversation I started The Good Fight to Have, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the podcast, Elif. So, you know, on this podcast, we usually think out loud about the rise of populism and what we can do about it. 
You're somebody who's a very astute political commentator. So I want to hear your opinion on Turkey, where you grew up part of your childhood, on Britain, where you live now, and many other places. But obviously, you're also famous as a fiction writer. What do you think fiction can do to help us understand this moment and come to terms of what's going on politically? Well, I think there's a lot fiction can do, stories can achieve, because they do connect us across borders, all kinds of borders, national, religious, ethnic, class, boundaries. Stories have that transformative power. But if I may add this, I think there's another dimension that has become all the more important right now. When we read the works of people who have survived the worst atrocities and tragedies in human history, including the Holocaust, when you read the artists and the writers who have survived such darkness, there's one thing that almost all of them are underlining, and I find it quite important. They say the, the opposite of goodness is not necessarily badness. The opposite of kindness is not necessarily wickedness. In other words, they're saying bad things happen not because so many people are bad. There are bad people, but relatively their numbers are small. So they're saying bad things happen because of something else. And the opposite of goodness is, in mm. fact, numbness, is indifference, is the moment we become desensitized to each other. So stories can make a difference in that regard because I think they challenge that numbness that surrounds us the indifference that we internalize and that makes us disconnected from our fellow human beings. It is in that regard that I think stories have an incredible power. You know, numbness resonates with me right now because, um, you know, when I look at the United States today, it seems to me that some of the worst predictions that people made in 2016, that I made in 2016, are coming to pass. But I find it hard to be exercised by them day to day. It's exhausting. And it feels like it's the onslaught of the same thing day after day. You know, the first times that certain basic norms of how to govern were broken, it seemed shocking. It seemed like, you know, it gave me a feeling of vertigo. And now we've just come to expect it. I mean, when Viktor Arban came to the White House a few weeks ago, it was objectively terrible, but it was expected. There was nothing surprising about it. And so, you know, I thought, should I write a piece about this? And then I thought, well, I mean, anybody who understands what's going on already knows that this is terrible. Anybody who still doesn't understand what's going on is not going to be swayed by a piece about this. So how can we fight against this numbness in this moment? Yeah, I appreciate your question. And I find it so important because, as you said, so much is happening East and West every day. We live with this feeling that there are so many uncertainties. Anything could happen now. And that is quite tiring. It is very exhausting, debilitating. We have this information fatigue. But that is a very dangerous threshold because this is how we become desensitized. And if enough people are desensitized, after that threshold, anything can occur. Any kind of racism, sexism, xenophobia can flourish upon that ground. So we have to find a way to deal with numbness. That is one thing. But the second thing that I find important, and this really breaks my heart, when I look at the people who are passionate about politics today, unfortunately, so many of them are the populists. So we have to find a way to engage mm. in political life with much more passion. They have the passion, but they don't have the right vision. So it is incredibly important. Of course, I'm someone who 
incredibly appreciates and respects research, data. I find it very important to back up all our arguments with reason. But as a novelist, perhaps I'm also aware that we need to bring the heart into the conversation. And it pisses me off that so many populist demagogues are much better than their liberal counterparts when it comes to addressing people's emotions, people's anxieties, fears, resentments. So we, we have to do a better job. And that means we need to connect with our own emotions. We need to bring more emotional intelligence on the table. That seems absolutely right to me. When you look at the European Parliament elections, you had people like Nigel Farage, like Matteo Salvini, like Marine Le Pen, all of some people, but people who have a very clear political vision, who speak with anger, who paint a bright picture of what the future could be if only they're allowed to do what they want. And then on the other side, you have a grey bureaucrat who is not even respected within his own political party and who's deeply morally compromised, like Manfred Weber. And so it's not a surprise that a lot of people end up voting for the populists. But I guess some cynics might say that fiction will make us understand in the wrong ways, that rather than making us passionate to fight for our own side, it will get into the head of a populist to understand why they're angry, to understand why they're doing what we're doing. And I see certainly when I look on Twitter and on other forms of social media and increasingly the opinion pages of American newspapers or The Guardian in Britain, a lot of people are saying, well, we just need to hate as much as the other side. We need to have passion, but not in the understanding way that fiction, I think, often achieves, that you seem to be saying, but in a stark friends and enemies way, fight fire with fire. How do you feel about that? Yes, I remember. Let's move back in time a little bit. We had a financial crisis that not so many experts saw coming, Right. We had the Arab Spring that was misinterpreted. You remember, you will remember the articles that were written around that time. In a nutshell, both economically and politically, including Brexit and including the election of Trump, so many of these events have not been predicted by very well-educated, very intelligent people whom we call experts and analysts. And I think we need to ask ourselves, why is it like that? Part of the answer is, of course, we have the academic tools and the conceptual tools and the intellectual tools, but something is missing. And that something is connection, connectivity. We need to go beyond our own echo chambers. We need to get out of our comfort zones. And for that, I find it very important that I, as a writer, I need to become as a a listener. Writers need to be good listeners. I listen to people. I listen to what they're saying. And also how they're saying what they're saying, with what kind of energy, what's the choice of words, what are the words they're using. But here I make a distinction. I am very critical, very vocal in my criticism about the populist elite, because I think we need to use the word populist elite over and over. They're creating an illusion as if they are not part of the elite, whereas they are. So we need Mm. to be very bold and loud in our criticism of the populist elite but at the same time make a difference between them and the people who might be following them for different reasons. Some of these people have anxieties about the future of their children. Some of these people do have anxieties about the societies, the communities they're living in. And yes, some of them have economic anxieties. I cannot underestimate any of those. And it is, I think, very important that we reach out and connect with the people while at the same time making it very clear why we criticize the populist elite. 
I think you're right on that. And this idea of the populist elite is very important. And it is striking to what extent a lot of the leading populists, not all of them, but a lot of them really come from an elite class. So you emphasized the economic roots of populism. I wonder how you feel about the more cultural roots. I sometimes feel at the moment that there is an odd movement to give up on the ideals of a multi-ethnic society as I conceive of it, which would involve real friendship and connection and so on between different ethnic and religious groups within a society. On the right, there is, in my mind, a very strong ethno-nationalist counter-reaction against that idea. People in countries like Germany, where I grew up saying, if you don't have your roots in Germany, if you have a different skin color, if you have a different religion, then you will never be German and we should never think of you as part of German society. And in an odd way, it seems to me that parts of the left are also giving up on what a sort of cosmopolitan ideal would have been 20 or 40 years ago, one in which cultures mix, in which we borrow from each other, in which we like to engage with each other. And parts of the left, perhaps shell-shocked by this rise of a right-wing ethno-nationalism, are starting to say, yeah, we should think of people primarily as members of groups and just fight for the rights of those groups, but give up on this naive, liberal, cosmopolitan idea that there'll be friendship and so on between these different groups in the way that new novels celebrate in some ways, in the way that I took for granted when I was growing up, even 20 years ago, as an ideal. How do you feel about this political moment? Was that ideal always naive? Was that itself a sort of elite vision of what society was? Do we need to give up on it in order to protect the basic rights of people? Or do you think we need to double down on it? I think we should never, never give up on, on diversity. And I do come from a country that has lost its diversity, that has lost its cosmopolitan culture and heritage. And I sincerely believe by losing that, we in Turkey have lost a lot. Not only a political loss, not only an economic loss, although that too, but I think something in our conscience, you know, something in the way we interact with each other as fellow human beings was damaged profoundly. But if I may add this, it worries me that some people on the side of the progressives, on our side of the spectrum, seem to think that the answer to one kind of tribalism is building up another tribalism. Retreating into tribes is never going to carry us forward. I think the right way is to find the method to transcend those tribes. How can I come up with another worldview that doesn't reiterate, that doesn't duplicate this tribalistic rhetoric, because we don't need any more of that. So to me, that it's very important to emphasize that we don't need to be narrowed down into singular monolithic identity politics. And this kind of pressure comes from all sides, East and West. We are being told, are you a Muslim? Then you can only be Muslim, of course, according to someone's definition of what a Muslim should be like. Are you Dutch? You can only be Dutch. Are you this? Are you that? Just choose your side and stick to it. I find that incredibly limiting, and I think it's against human nature. So to me, it's very important to emphasize multiple belongings. I've always said I am an Istanbulite, but I'm also attached to the Aegean, the Balkans. There's so many elements in my soul from the Middle East. I'm a European by birth, by choice. I became a Londoner over the years, a British citizen. Despite what Theresa May says, I would like to think of myself as a world citizen and the global soul. If I can have multiple belongings, if someone else can have multiple belongings, there's a better chance that we can find a common ground. These mutually exclusive tribes based on anger won't carry us anywhere. 
Also, I think it's very important to emphasize that most of the clashes that we're experiencing today are cultural clashes. We became so obsessed with data, with measurable quantitative data, that for a very long time, political scientists have underestimated things that can't be measured so easily, including emotions, including perceptions. You know, perceptions do matter. They only look at the figures of immigration, but how the reality is perceived is just as important. So we need to enter into that more abstract terrain of culture. And I honestly think the major clashes in the days and years ahead of us will be in the sphere of culture. In a recent article, you distinguish between a clash of civilizations and a clash of cultures. And as I understand it, when we talk about civilizations, we talk about, say, the part of a world which has been shaped by Christianity and the part of a world that has been shaped by Islam and the sort of Sino-Chinese culture and so on. And as you see it, this clash of cultures actually runs within societies rather than between societies. Is that right? What do you mean by this clash of cultures as opposed to civilizations? Well, you will remember it was Samuel Huntington's prediction that we will be experiencing a clash of civilizations. And that theory was mostly interpreted as a clash between East and West, But to be more blunt, it was regarded as a clash between Western Christian civilization and Islam. And that is not what we're experiencing. Rather than that, I think we are experiencing multiple clashes, not just one major rift, but maybe hundreds of clashes, mini battles within societies. And this is happening in country after country, East and West. So it's happening in Venezuela, it's happening in Brazil, it's happening in Turkey, Hungary, Poland, the Philippines. The list is very long and it's getting longer. This is precisely why we need to understand the complexity of the issue. But but I think people don't want to talk about complexity. It is even more tiring. And it's a dangerous crossroads because this is when the populist demagogue enters into the picture. All the populist demagogues say, you know what, politics is simple. Everything is straightforward, simple. I'm going to make it simple for you. We, we mm. need to understand that it is not simple. We need to embrace complexity, multiplicity. To me, this is very important. And I'm digressing a little bit, but I want to come back to identity politics. There was a moment in time, particularly in 1970s, African-American women's movement was very aware of the need for multiplicity for the progressives because many of these people, because they were black, They were on the receiving end of racism. Because they were women, mm. they knew how sexism worked and misogyny and patriarchy worked. Because many of them came from disadvantaged backgrounds or disprivileged backgrounds, they knew how class hierarchy worked. And again, because many of them were LGBT members, they knew how homophobia and transphobia worked. So for them, power was a far more complex structure than just black and white. And this is why when you read their works, people like Audre Lorde, they're saying, look at me, I'm a woman, I'm a poet, I'm a mother, I'm a lesbian, and I'm many more things that you might not be able to see at first glance. So the emphasis was, I contain multitudes. This is what we're losing mm. today. We're losing that emphasis even within the feminist movement today, within the progressive movement today. We stop saying, I contain multitudes. And that worries me. That's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought about, that there's something deeply paradoxical about the way in which this concept of intersectionality is interpreted today. Because at the very heart of intersectionality lies the recognition, in a sense, that we have multiple identities. 
that it's not enough to think of somebody as a woman or somebody who's black in the United States if they're both then those identities intersect in complicated ways. And I think to a liberal, that idea of multiple identities leads to a politics in which you want to be very alive to disadvantages that people suffer on the basis of those descriptive identities. But you want to retain the understanding that the particular intersection of identities that any one individual experiences is so complicated that there's not a second person, uh, perhaps not even their sibling, who has exactly the same uh, set of identities, and that they may decide to really identify by those descriptive characteristics or to try and transcend them and for those not to be very important. Now, what happened instead in a lot of the sort of further left movements is that after recognizing that there are these different identities and that this is incredibly complex, they said, so then we have to seal them off from each other and create a kind of hierarchy in which one has greater authority than the other because by some external standard, that group is more oppressed. So there's something sort of odd in the recognition of multiple identities and the rebellion against it, the rejection of it, but I think is inherent in the current discourse of intersectionality. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And this, of course, this is happening on both sides of the Atlantic, particularly on university campuses. We see this claim, who has the authority mm-hmm. to speak? We need to be very careful about this. To me, freedom of speech is incredibly important. Again, coming from Turkey as a writer, all my life I've fought for freedom of speech. My only red line is the kind of hate speech that incites direct violence. So I put that aside, and I think we need to be very aware of that. And I do believe that we need to keep an eye on the digital world as well, the digital space. We can't be naive about that. But that aside, we need to engage you know, in conversations with people whom we might bitterly disagree with. This is incredibly important, and we need to bring forth more nuanced conversations. What the populists are doing, and I find that very, very damaging and dangerous, they are telling us in life we have only two options. The entire life is a Brexit referendum, you know? You just leave or remain. Two options only. On every Mm. issue, this is the kind of binary thinking that they're imposing on us. So, for instance, about immigration, they're saying, are you the kind of people who is pro, you know, open borders so that anyone can come in, all sorts of people, no checks, no security checks, nothing, anyone can come in, or do you care about safety and security? And, of course, people say, well, if these are the only two options I have, of course I'm going to go for safety and security. What we have to say is, you know what, I'm not going to accept the two choices that you're giving me. I'm not going to accept this binary duality, this dualistic way of thinking. Of course, I am pro-immigration, and yet at the same time, I can defend a sensible, reasonable immigration policy. So I think always we need to remind ourselves that there are more options, and if there aren't more options, we should create them. I think that's exactly right, both on the substantive questions of policy and on how we talk about it rhetorically. In the Democratic Party of the United States, there's a debate about, I guess, identity politics at the moment where there's a sort of left wing of the party, which I think says, look, we should embrace becoming a party that assembles a coalition of minorities and we should engage in explicit identity politics, say that these are the groups in society that we stand for, which is something that, you know, I'm skeptical of both as an electoral strategy because over half of the people who voted for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were white but also as an ideal, because I don't want an America in which 40 years from now you can walk down the street 
and tell by the color of somebody's skin which political party they're voting for. That, to me, is not something to aspire to. And then I think there's some moderates in the party who are saying, well, we need to win all of those whites in uh, the Rust Belt and so on. So let's talk about the economy and let's not talk too much about the ways in which Donald Trump is victimizing people today on the basis of belonging to certain groups. And that, to me, is unacceptable as well, because obviously what Trump is doing is hateful and terrifying and unacceptable. And I think the answer to that is to say that we will stand up for the rights of anybody, not because they're a member of this or that group, not because the Latino or Black and Democrats are the party of African-Americans or the party of Latinos. It's because they're human beings and they're our fellow citizens and they're our fellow Americans. And we owe them the same rights and opportunities uh, as anybody else in this country. And so when Trump hates on African-Americans, we stand up for them, not because they're Black, but because they're our fellow citizens who are under attack. When he locks up children in cages, we don't come to the rescue because we're Latino. We come to the rescue because they're innocent children being maltreated horribly. Of course, absolutely. And I think what you're saying is so important and it has such a radical impact because it means whoever feels like the other Whoever feels left out, I'm going to reach out to that person. You know, that person is my brother. That person is my sister. I'm going to connect with that person, which means we're going to talk about inequality, all kinds of inequality. Of course, primarily economic inequality, the year 2019. And I sincerely believe inequality needs to be at the heart of all of our debates. This has been going on for so long. And you explain it so beautifully in your work, how particularly since late 1980s, 1990s, the median household income, how it has become flat while the 1% has been increasing their wealth, their profits, and the gap in between has been widening and widening. So there's that going on. But also we need to talk about inequalities and gaps in education, in culture, in opportunities. So that's a very important part of our discussion. But hmm. if I can say, if I can have an all-embracing approach, not based on identity politics, but an approach that understands the unfairness, the injustice of leaving people out, then I can say, you know, I can connect with so many people, as you said, not because of their identity. Yeah. And that means I can also understand young white men who might be going through a lot of stress and a lot of economic anxiety because of various reasons. We need the kind of progressive movement that also reaches out to that segment of the population. So there's two critiques of what you just said, and I'd love to hear your response to them because I think I might agree with them. So the first critique is every time that a journalist tried to write a piece about that, right, went to some town in which most people voted for Donald Trump and tried to explain why people there were so angry at the government and at Washington, there was a sort of backlash against humanizing hate, that actually we shouldn't try to understand people who vote for Donald Trump, we shouldn't try to understand people, certainly, who are to the right of that. We should just condemn them. So I guess the first question is, why is that wrong? I'm going to have a second question up my sleeve that I'll ask you after that. We should be very clear and condemn all kinds of racism, xenophobia, sexism, and anything, any ideology that discriminates human beings. That is for clear. And while we do that, at the same time, we can try to understand why is it that populist movements have become more powerful today rather than 20 years ago? We need no. to be able to give that answer. Of course, Obama himself said populism is a symptom, it's not the cause. I agree. But I think we need to go further than that. Populism is not only a symptom, 
So in other words, it's true that it is the wrong answer to some very real problems. We need to talk about the problems. But in addition to that, I think populism is a catalyst. And once it kicks in, it makes everything ugly and uglier. We do know that when populists are in opposition, they put pressure on mainstream parties and politicians to behave like populists, which is a huge mistake in my opinion. But when they come to power, it becomes even more dangerous because they change the institutions, they change the electoral law, they change the judiciary, and then they start to clamp down on opposition. This is exactly what they've done in Turkey and Hungary and Poland. So we can't be naive about, again, the populist demagogues and elite themselves. But at the same time, we need to understand the root of the problem. So my approach is we are capable as liberals, as progressives, we are capable of doing several things at the same time. I don't have to pick just one strategy at the expense of all others and ignore the other things. Mm -hmm. And even though this is not a comfortable thing to say, we need to understand that not everyone who voted Brexit is a xenophobe, not everyone who voted for Trump is an Islamophobe. We have to understand that, of course, there is a big undercurrent of xenophobia inside these movements. But if we push people aside further and further, nobody's going to benefit from this. And again, coming from Turkey, one thing I know, when societies are bitterly polarized, the only people who benefit from this are the populist demagogues at the top. Mm -hmm. And this is precisely what they want. There is a reason why People like Trump and Orban and Erdogan, again and again, they talk about us versus them. There's a reason why they divide people into two camps. Remember what Trump himself said when he was running during the election time. He said, what we need to do is unify the people. And the next sentence he said was, as for the other people, they don't really matter. Who are the other people? Erdogan says the same thing. So my point is, they do divide the society further and further. And if we do the same thing, we won't be getting anywhere positive. So we have to find a way just to change the game and connect with the people. At the same time, I can be very critical of all kinds of racism and xenophobia. I can do several things simultaneously. I'm sort of slightly stuck in this interview because all I can do is to agree with you at every turn, I think. That explains why it is that division will always help the populists and that the problem with fighting fire with fire is that you are entrenching a division in society which will, first of all, always help extremists. And secondly, uh, I'm pretty uh, convinced from historical experience that when you have left-wing extremists uh, fight against right-wing extremists, it's the right-wing extremists who tend to win. I want to go back to the second question I had up my sleeve, which now seems a little remote, but which I think is important, which is another criticism of going out, or for example, you going out to understand people in Michigan who voted for Trump maybe that we should increasingly write about our own groups. This is an idea that's very influential in fiction now, that there is boundaries as to what a writer of one particular identity group should be allowed to write about another. Now, the nature of those boundaries is, uh, I think, quite incoherent and inchoate. They haven't really set in in a clear way. It, it tends to be that uh, sort of somebody from a more privileged group is not allowed to write about somebody from a less privileged group. But I wanted to get your sense of whether there's something to that. Should there be limits as to what a novelist can write about, or should we be allowed to write about anything that takes our fancy? There should be no limits, you know. If we're talking about art, if we're talking about literature, 
I am very critical of identity politics in general, but particularly I'm critical of the kind of identity politics that is imposed on literary activity, you know, on literature. And it affects me personally too, because if you happen to be a women writer from outside the Western world, this sort of identity politics directly shapes the way we are published, we are reviewed, the way we are perceived. Let me give you an example. If you happen to be an Afghan woman writer, nobody expects you to write science fiction. You know, why can't an Afghan woman writer write sci-fi or experimental fiction or avant-garde fiction? No, we want her to write about the problems of being a woman in Afghanistan. We attribute a function to fiction. We want her to be so-called, you know, realistic and inform us. And I think we writers need to fight against this. Of course, she might write about Afghan women one day, but maybe in her next novel, she's going to do something much more avant-garde. We need to give each other that space, that freedom. It is precisely why literature matters and why it goes beyond the limits that are given to us in our daily lives. Remember Virginia Woolf's Orlando? I mean, she wrote that at a very different time than ours. And I remember very vividly the first time I read that book, for the first time, Seeing a a hero who turns into a heroine, reading a story that went beyond centuries, geographical limits, time limits, to me it was like Mm. mind-opening. And I didn't know until then, because I I was quite young when I read Orlando for the first time, that people could do this, writers could do this. And I don't want to lose that. So to me it's very important that we reject to be pigeonholed. You know, we reject to be narrowed down into identity politics. That's one thing. But coming back to how people behave on particularly vis-a-vis minorities and why is this is important for writers. I want to give you an example. In Turkey, I have a very diverse readership and many of my readers are quite xenophobic, particularly about minorities. So if you ask their opinions about Jews, Armenians, Greeks, Kurds, Alevis, because these are the main minorities in Turkey, some of my readers will tell you quite negative, biased, prejudiced things And I have many readers who are very homophobic because this is a society that they live in, you know, and in their families, this is the only narrative they hear. But then the same people come to me and they say, you know, I read your book and here's the character that I love the most. And maybe the character they're talking about is Armenian or Greek or Jewish, or maybe that character is gay or bisexual or transsexual. So I really thought about this a lot. How is it possible that people who are in the public space in the company of other people, much more biased, when they are alone and when they're reading a novel, when they go within, they become relatively more ready to connect with the Mm. other. And I think we should never forget that power of art. And as you know, it's not a coincidence that all kinds of fascism, authoritarianism, they rely on collectivistic energy you know, masses chanting together, synchronized energy, erasing individuality. I think art restores that kind of individuality, not in a selfish way, but the kind of individuality that helps us to connect Mm. with our fellow human beings. So in order to achieve that, I need to go beyond identity politics. Well, there's so much in what you just said, one part of which is how much we give up if we tell you as somebody who belongs to the majority within Turkey, that you're not allowed to write about minority groups in Turkey. Because there might be some people who are probably already very liberal and very progressive who are willing to go and read a novel written by a minority author within Turkey, 
right? But that is going to be a smaller audience. There's a much larger number of people who read your books. And if you said, I think it's problematic for me to write about those groups, then all of your readers wouldn't be able to encounter those figures and to develop sympathy for them, to develop an understanding for them, and hopefully a respect, which is one of the functions of fiction. But I mean, the other thing that I'm actually struck by in your description, and I was thinking about this this morning, rereading some of your work, is, you know, what happens if one author is only allowed to write about their own group? Well, it actually creates an ethnically cleansed universe, which is to say that if you're only allowed to write about one group, then you have to populate fictional universes in which these other groups don't appear. You cannot write a novel about an intercultural, interracial marriage of course. if you are a member of one group and you're not allowed to write about the other. You are not able to chronicle something that you do in many of your works, uh, today's Istanbul and historical Istanbul, if you have to pretend that it is more monocultural and more monoethnic than it actually is. And that betrays something about the instinct behind that prohibition of portraying other groups, which is an instinct towards a cultural homogeneity, which in my mind ultimately is a weird mirror image of what some right-wing populists want to achieve. That is so true. I, I completely agree. Also, in lands such as mine, we should bear in mind that there are so many conspiracy theories, and that's another mm. side effect of populism. So, for instance, when I wrote a novel called The Bastard of Istanbul, which tells the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family, there were articles in the Turkish press saying, oh, she must be a secret Armenian. <laughs> I wrote a novel called, really? I wrote a, a, a novel called Honor, which tells the story of a Kurdish family in London. And then there were articles saying she must be secret Kurd. You know, I talk about Sephardic Jews in Turkish. So they're saying, oh, she must be a dönme. So she must be, you know, secret Jew. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because the underlying premise is if it is not your story, if it is not your own identity, why would you even write about someone else's story? Why would you even care? And I think this is the premise that we need to challenge together with all those conspiracy theories. We need to demolish that premise that tells us if it's not your identity, why are you even caring about someone else's story? Yeah, it's interesting that the default assumption is if you write about a group, you must secretly belong to it and be secretly trying to advance its interests, which is, I think, one of the odd things that, you know, by and large in fiction that works and that people want to read, even when characters are, as somebody once said, 51% bad and 49% good in order to be interesting in fiction, you have to have a bottom line sympathy for them, a bottom line empathy. Otherwise, it's not going to work as fiction. So this idea that there's some great breach involved in telling the story of another group because you must be trying to keep down its interest is sort of out of keeping with how most readers actually uh, experience and perceive it, which is interesting. Let's talk about Turkey for a moment. You know, we had municipal elections very recently in which despite all of the limits on free speech in the country, extreme repression of some of the opposition parties, they actually won in Ankara and Istanbul and many other parts of the country. And then Erdogan sort of revealed his hand, because while he always claimed legitimacy from democratic elections, the moment they went against him, 
he had some of his allies in the Electoral Commission. And now the election in Istanbul is going to be a new one in June. What's happened in Turkey over the last decades and how much hope do you retain for a return to a real democracy in the country now? Yeah, I honestly think Turkey holds important lessons for progressives all over the world. And it shows us that history can go backwards and societies mm. can make the same mistakes that their great-grandparents had already made. But we need to also bear in mind that the party in power in Turkey, AKP, they came to power about 14 years ago. They have been in power for such a long time. And just like Viktor Orban in Hungary, AKP in Turkey came with liberal promises. They promised reforms, a new constitution, pushing for EU membership. So the rhetoric in those early years was very different. And then it became more and more closed, inward-looking isolationists. Together with that, ultranationalism was on the rise. In my opinion, religious fundamentalism has been on the rise. And of course, authoritarianism has been on the rise. One thing that Turkey also shows us, that for a democracy to exist, the ballot box in itself is not enough. Of course, the ballot box is important. But in addition to that, you need rule of law, separation of powers, definitely a free media and diverse media, independent academia, women's rights, minority rights. Together with all those components, can a democracy survive? So in Turkey, we've lost one by one each and every one of those components. And we were only left with the ballot box. That system is not a democracy. It's majoritarianism. And once majoritarianism kicks in, From there into authoritarianism, it was a very quick slide backwards. So Turkey has been going backwards with a bewildering speed. As you know, today is the is the leading country in terms of jailing journalists, surpassing even China's sad record, even Russia's sad record. Yeah. And what happened with the recent elections, local elections, is completely unacceptable, completely unlawful. And it's a new law. I mean, this had never happened before. And I'm not saying that the elections was fair. It wasn't because, as you said, if one voice controls the entire media, most of the social media and opposition parties are not given enough voice, there's we can't talk about fair game. But despite this, the fact that half of the society keeps voting against Erdogan says something about the complexity of Turkey's civil society. So I find that important. But what the AKP has done right now is to say we're going to cancel the elections just because we didn't like the outcome. There is no lawful basis for this. And the voter turnout was incredibly high. We need to bear in mind. Each person has voted four times within the same envelope. So in a ridiculous way, they're counting all the other three votes But hmm. only cancelling the fourth vote, which was the vote for the mayor. <laughs> There's no logic. No. I wasn't aware of that detail. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's particularly damning. How, how is that possible? So there's no logic whatsoever. But of course, they made these grandiose claims. Erdogan himself said, if we lose Istanbul, we're going to lose Turkey. So after saying that, they cannot accept the fact that they have lost Istanbul, indeed. So what's the way forward now? Do you think the opposition is able to carry off the same success in June, or will there be even more outright ways of vote rigging and so on in order to stop that? And is there any democratic path towards reestablishing democracy in Turkey? I would take from uh, Erdogan's inability to accept the outcome of a municipal election, however important it might be, that even if all of the manipulation of the media, even if uh, various attempts at vote rigging somehow failed, 
and he lost a majority in you know the next presidential or parliamentary elections, he would simply overrule the outcome and stay in power. Yeah, it is quite worrying because this has been going on for such a long time. I mean, Turkey's decline, slide backwards into nationalism, religiosity. To me, it's much more particularly alarming for women, you know, mm. because I think whenever these things are on the rise, sexism is also on the rise. And it's not a coincidence that uh, in terms of women's rights, we have seen a huge backlash in Turkey. And to me, it's very important to emphasize that too. But I want to tell you just one more thing about the opposition mayor uh, in Istanbul, Ekrem İmamoğlu. One of the things that I find very important about him is he has this very constructive, all-embracing approach that we needed to see. And I think this is a difficult subject to talk about because when we talk about authoritarianism, we mostly focus on politics and politicians, but we need to understand the damage of authoritarianism on the society. What happens to the social fabric? What happens mm. to daily human relationships? We have become a very angry society in Turkey. We have become a very divided, fragmented society of people who don't necessarily even talk to each other anymore. So what we need is the kind of a new narrative that tries to unite people around common values of democracy. And he is trying to do that, the opposition mayor, CHP's mayor. I think that is the right way forward, you know, that kind of constructive approach. But it's not easy because the entire media and the entire narrative is dominated by the party and there's a huge monopoly of power in Turkey at the moment. So I've heard uh, raves about this mayor and his ability to assemble a very broad coalition and respond to the intense pressure he's on and the outright rigging of the election with both passion and calm. What does that look like? Tell us what choices he's made, what kind of rhetoric he employs, because I think whether you're located in Britain or in the United States or any of the other many countries that listeners to this podcast uh, are sitting in, this is something that I think all of us can probably learn from. Absolutely. And I think that combination is a beautiful one to be passionate, but also calm. You know, anger, I can understand. Anger can have high energy. Anger can be a very sexy force, you know, it, it carries us forward. But the problem with anger is it's repetitive. And after a while, it becomes toxic and we start to repeat ourselves and we can't get out of that labyrinth of anger. So we need to channel our frustrations, our angers, our anxieties into something much more positive. And for me, it's very important to speak calmly with our fellow human beings without forgetting that us human beings, we're all different degrees, you know, on the same spectrum. It's not, nothing is mutually exclusive. Nothing is completely antagonistically divided. They're just different, different shades. And maybe this is something I've also learned from mysticism, from, you know, from Sufis, from Jewish mystics, from Christian mystics. I like that old philosophy that reminds us, you know, don't forget, whatever you criticize is also present in you, maybe 1% or 2%, but you must remember that. So that kind of connectivity, that all-embracing approach is something we sorely need in politics today. But at the same time, we need to be passionate. We need to be engaged and committed as citizens. And I do sincerely believe we have entered an age in which none of us can afford to be non-political anymore. 
you know, as writers coming coming from wounded democracies such as Turkey, Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, Venezuela, we never had the luxury of being non-political. But I think more and more Western authors are beginning to feel the same kind of urgency to speak up and to speak out. And I'm not talking about party politics, I'm not talking about partisan politics, but to speak up about core issues. So we're at that crossroads And I also believe all these things are so important, like faith is way too important to leave to the religious. Patriotism is way too important to the nationalists. And I think the tech world is way too important to leave to tech companies and tech monopolies. And politics in general is way too important to leave to career politicians. So in all these areas and many more, I believe we need to become more engaged and more passionate. I want to get to Britain, but I can't help asking because you talk about political fiction. To go back for a second to the question of fiction, what makes for good political fiction? I feel like at its worst, political fiction is propaganda, is shoring up the in-group and hatred against the out-group, is a way of buttering up all of the views and prejudices we held before. But the obverse of that cannot be fiction which tries to be morally relativistic, which tries to say that, you know, you can understand any different set of human beings and you can understand any set of ideologies and so therefore any ideology is as good as the other. What do you think of as the characteristics of good political fiction? Well, I'm a feminist and one of the many wonderful things that I've learned from women's movements of past generations was that politics is not only about political parties, it's not only about parliament or elections, Wherever there's power, there's politics. So in that regard, mm. the personal is also political. Now, if you define politics in such a broad and diffused way, again, you can't be non-political. As a writer, you might be writing about sexual taboos, but that too is a political work. That said, I make a distinction. For me, there's a very important nuance here. I don't like it when fiction writers try to teach something. I don't like it when fiction writers preach You know, actually, I find that very off-putting. I think our job is not to try to find the answers, but to ask the questions, difficult questions about difficult issues, including the taboos, the things we cannot easily talk about. So it's very clear that as storytellers, we are chasing stories, but I think we're equally chasing silences, the things we cannot talk about easily in a society at a given time. I just want to create a space where I can hear a diversity of opinions about that difficult issue and then always leave the answer to the reader because I can't dictate that, I can't manipulate that and I should never try to. And every reader's reading is going to be unique, just like our fingerprints. Yeah, I always took that point seriously. I forget who first made it, but if you can put the moral of a story into a simple propositional sentence, then you should probably just write an opinion essay or some point of nonfiction. True. The purpose of fiction is to express a tension or a contradiction in the world, something about the world that you precisely can't say as, you know, X is good or Y is bad, because otherwise just, just write a tweet saying X is good and you're done. You've lived for a long time now in Britain. And one of the things that I find striking about the country is the way in which its image and its reality seems to have flipped in the span of five years. I mean, something like five years ago, a lot of people in the world would have stereotyped Brits as being particularly moderate, particularly averse to radical change, 
a society that for many of its problems of which people were aware, had a real sense of common basis and mutual understanding. And today, it seems to be one of the most divided countries in certainly uh, Europe with this deep hatred of each other across a political divide also with racial and ethnic tensions much more on the fore than they were five years ago. What are your thoughts on how this could happen and what lies ahead for the country? When I first moved to the UK about a decade ago, if not more, I used to think the Brits are very calm when they talk about politics, you know, how can they be so calm? And I no longer think that way. I, actually, people are people get very emotional and the divisions have become more and more visible. It affects even friendships and family conversations. This is new. It wasn't like this. And Brexit, in a way, broke the system. That referendum, its aftermath, what happened before and during the referendum, it was incredibly toxic. And once that toxicity is out, that's why I think populism is a catalyst. It, it transforms things things and the very nature of politics. There are difficult conversations that we need to have. What happened throughout the Brexit campaign, how many lies have been uttered? There were primarily two issues. One of them was NHS. People were told that they would be getting £350 million a week, which was a complete lie and it has been accepted that it was a lie after the Brexit result was announced. And the second thing involved Turkey, actually. There were billboards everywhere saying the Turks are coming, like the barbarians are coming, you know, with that kind of underlying message. Turkey is joining the EU, 70 million of them, so it's time for us to leave. And again, that was a lie. And for me, it was heartbreaking to see my motherland being used almost like a fear factor throughout the Brexit debate. Now, when I say all of this, I am not underestimating the fact that not every part of this country equally benefited from globalization and from EU membership. We need to understand, once again, those inequalities and those gaps. But all I'm saying is those inequalities have been exploited by the Leave campaign in a very unethical way. And of course, now, only now, we are beginning to talk about Cambridge Analytica and how the social media, all these dark posts, micro-targeting, big data. We still need to have those very difficult conversations. And I find that very important as well. In my opinion, everything is topsy-turvy right now. Theresa May herself was pro-Remain, but she had to lead the negotiations for Brexit. We have an opposition leader who himself was a Eurosceptic, Jeremy Corbyn, but he is at the head of a party that is primarily pro-Remain. So everything feels, you know, topsy-turvy. My concern is, and you again explained this so well in your work, Yasha, as you point out, the number of young people who are frustrated with this two-party system and who are looking for alternatives outside the system, that number is increasing. So the number of young people who associate themselves with either more radical left or more radical right, that number has doubled in the UK and not only in the UK, in Germany and US, you point out. So I find that very alarming. And I think what we're losing is coexistence, the common ground. And I believe that was one of Theresa May's biggest mistakes, not to go beyond party. It's trying to please the hardliners in her own party was a big, big mistake. I think this is an issue that goes beyond parties and she had to find a common ground, which she didn't. Just to round off a conversation, 
this is a question I'm always asked, and I hate the question, but you're so good at thinking about things and responding in surprising ways that perhaps you'll give an answer that I can then steal from you. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I think we need both, and I'll try to explain why. You will remember there was a time in early 2000s, particularly in late 1990s, there was so much optimism. And most of that optimism was actually shared by people from the world of technology. So this tech, tech optimism, they believe that thanks to digital developments, we were all going to become one big global village. That kind of optimism was especially applied to the part of the world where I come from, to the Middle East. So the uprisings in Iran were called the Twitter rebellion. There were predictions that the youth in Iran would be, instead of firing shots, they would be firing tweets. The Arab Spring was called the Facebook revolution. And the optimism was so high that a young couple in Egypt named their newborn baby daughter Facebook. So as we're speaking right now, there's a teenager in Egypt whose very existence symbolizes the optimism of a bygone era. That's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking, you know. And as you know, it was hailed as the triumph of liberal democracy. And people thought that history could move only in one direction, that everything had to be progressive. And because of that, in a very arrogant way, I think they also divided the world into two sections, that feminism, women's rights, uh, human rights, freedom of speech were only necessary in the parts of the world that were outside the West, because those were the parts of the world that were lagging behind, but sooner or later they would catch up. But the Western world itself was beyond those concerns. And I think after the year 2016, all of that has been shattered. But fast forward, now we have entered the age of pessimism. And the problem with extreme pessimism is that it creates numbness, going back to our initial subject. So I am a follower of Antonio Gramsci in this regard. Gramsci used to talk about the pessimism of the intellect. We need that so that we can understand what is at stake. We can't be naive about this. But at the same time, we used to talk about the optimism of the heart, the optimism of the will. And we need that too, so that we can overcome the numbness and connect with our fellow human beings. Elif, I don't think there could be a better end to this conversation. Thank you so much for all you do. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was such a pleasure, Yasha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, print out stickers with the Good Fight logo and put them up on every house in your neighborhood. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.